0: Let us pray. Father God, gather around your word this morning. Help us to hear from it. Help us to delight in it. Help us to further grow how you've called us to grow as members of your body through the hearing of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot of people talking about suffering, especially this week. I can't help when there are moments like this that arise in our nation to think of the time the Lord called me to serve in the aftermath of the largest shooting in American history at Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas, and approaching that hospital, the sad spectacle of it all, where news groups from every nation. I mean, even in a, an Italian news group tried to interview me leaving the hospital, trying to see if I had a story to tell, a story to share. Get canvassed and covered the entire campus of the primary trauma facility of, of Las Vegas. And then there were two groups of protesters shouting at each other in political epitaphs at one another. And it was just sad, such a sad Sight to see. Your Secret Service was busy setting up the hospital for a presidential visit. The world does not know what to do with suffering. That's at the heart of the Christian faith. That's at really the heart of even this sermon series that we've been in. In Genesis, the world does not know what to do. With suffering, and yet we worship the God who takes suffering, who understands suffering, who puts suffering upon himself. We worship the God who knows what it's like to lose a child. We worship the God who brings life in suffering, life out of death. And so we are to remember that. We are not to forget that. Often we as Christians adorn ourselves with crosses, adorn our our homes. And yet, how quickly we often forget that essential truth that at the core of the Christian faith within the household of God is to be able to understand it's only in the hands of God can suffering bring fruit of life. Now, today's passage really completes a look at 20 years. And 20 years, really, in this section of Scripture for two individuals. We looked at Judah in Genesis chapter 38 and his 20 years. And then we looked at at Joseph, a closer look at Joseph. While Judah is not mentioned in this passage, we saw previously in Genesis 38, Judah suffered without God. And because he suffered in sinfulness without God, he and his household suffered uniquely for it. He did not escape suffering by denying God. In the godless lifestyle that he'd lived in for 20 years, he had suffering brought about, actually directly often brought about by his own sin. But eventually, of course, we saw that Judah went publicly confronted by his sin through Tamar, he finally repented. And now we are coming to a close of Joseph's story of 20 years in comparison to Judah. Joseph also suffered greatly. Thirteen long years Joseph suffered, and God counted down the days until Joseph's suffering would end. But today's passage will actually offer seven more years uh, connected to Joseph's suffering for 13, and it bears this unique fruit of God using Joseph's suffering to bless a great multitude. These passages of Genesis declare to us today, moral evil is all around us, and natural evils are all around us as well. And the only way for either the moral evils or the natural evils, the only way for those to be redeemed is through the sovereign, gracious hand of God. While creation and its inhabitants groan at the state of the world, the midst of all the suffering that our sin has brought about, we look here to Genesis 41, and we look at Joseph's third set of dreams. God had used the first set of Joseph's dreams 13 years earlier to make clear that Joseph was a unique son anointed by God in the family of Israel. Then God used the second set of dreams to display Joseph's faithfulness, even while in an Egyptian prison, to continue to trust in God in in the midst of senseless suffering. Because within God's economy, suffering was never senseless. And now in chapter 41, God has used two dreams to elevate Joseph from the horrible pit once and for all to the glory of Pharaoh's court. Joseph having shown himself last week as greater than all of Pharaoh's magi. For Pharaoh and Pharaoh had noticed this uniqueness as we saw in verse 39 of Joseph's discernment and wisdom. And these are the qualities of Joseph that he loves and he wants them to run his nation for him. And so in verse 40 of the ESV, we see Pharaoh declaring, all my people shall order themselves as you command, Joseph. Or a more wooden translation of the Hebrew, it actually is connected to a common expression in Egyptian society from this time. It's almost something closer to, my people will kiss the very earth you walk on, Joseph, when you declare something. Which is an interesting wording because Actually, there are hints of the fulfillment of the first set of dreams that God, his family, so riled up in the implication of those words. Because when somebody basically kisses the dust before you, is that not a form of bowing? And so Pharaoh makes Joseph's voice as if Pharaoh himself is speaking. This son of Israel, Joseph, will speak on behalf of the Egyptian Lord and hence will be given reverence and honor in Egypt just as the Lord of the great house of Egypt receives reverence and honor. So God loves to pour out his blessings on one such as this, one who honorably suffers. And the fullness of Pharaoh's desire to bless Joseph is summed up in verse 41 of this passage. See, I've set you over all, the land of Egypt. But let's be honest, Egypt is a vast land, and just because Pharaoh has declared this doesn't mean people would readily believe or want to listen to Pharaoh's generosity here, especially because he's being so generous to a foreigner, someone who is not of their own. Now ask yourselves the following question. The kind of power Pharaoh is now giving Joseph who most likely had it before Joseph received it? I mean, a nation always has a second in command. Joseph would have been replacing someone. Think of, think for a moment with, in Egypt, who was most likely the second in command before Joseph? This is a little bit of a speculation, but I think of a grounded speculation. It's very plausible. It could have been Potiphar himself the captain of Pharaoh's armies, the man who unjustly put him in the prison as his wife had lied about Joseph. Do you think that could potentially cause some tension or a rivalry? Even if Potiphar wasn't the second in command, don't you think the captain of the guard of of Pharaoh's armies might be upset? I mean, Pharaoh would have most certainly known why Joseph was in prison. You don't send for a prisoner to come before your presence without first knowing what is alleged of them, what their sins are before your face. And so more than just Pharaoh's word is given to establish Joseph in his new role as Pharaoh's foremost representative of Egypt, Pharaoh actually begins to adorn Joseph with items that are his. First, by giving him his own signet ring. Now, a signet ring was essentially like giving him the power to sign any document for the family. My wife, for instance, she, this is like the power of attorney or the power of the bank account, the power of the purse strings. My wife could clear out our bank account today at uh, Bank of America, and she could take maybe, in doing so, a nice vacation, so long as she doesn't go to a crazy expensive hotel. All the ends will work, but you could clear it out, and she could spend it all. Joseph is being given a far greater account in this signet ring. He's receiving a ring off of Pharaoh's finger. And so his name is as good as Pharaoh's. And for the second time then, after this ring is given, Pharaoh is given a rope, a distinguished rope. Clothes that would have distinguished Joseph as unique. There are Pharaoh's clothes that he is covered in. A rope that stands out amongst all others. He had first received, of course, a robe from his father, Jacob. And he was adorned by that robe, and his brothers came to hate that robe. And the brothers used that robe in order to confuse and trick their father into believing Joseph was dead. That was the first covering of the favored son of Israel. Now this new robe, this is... The second great covering of Joseph's life, it will help establish the fact that the household of Pharaoh himself covers this servant. And then a fine gold chain is put around Joseph's neck so that the end of it all, as Joseph is on the march in Egypt, it's undeniable, Pharaoh's favor rests upon this individual. And then in verses 43 and 44, Pharaoh and Joseph take two chariots out. He's now getting a ride in his uh, chariots. And they ride beside one another. And as people would bow to Pharaoh, they now also bow to Joseph. And so the first set of Joseph's dreams are actually starting to be fulfilled here. Not a full fulfillment, that more to come. But people are bowing before him in homage to him. Think of this, the first ride he had to Egypt, he came as a slave, as a kidnapped victim. And this second grand ride of Joseph in Egypt, it's as an exalted hero, riding in Pharaoh's personal chariot and receiving the praise of the one who is over the great house of Egypt. And after the grand ride through Egypt, Pharaoh declares Joseph fully under his protection. A Joseph who has often known people raising up their hands against him in anger and in betrayal is promised that it will never happen again. Even in what a gift security is like this, even our society. and Are we not in part riled up because the simple inability to provide the security that one should have in this life? And yet, Joseph receives it. And in the whirlwind of blessings being poured out upon Joseph, now I want to take a break from this passage and point something out that I think is crucial for us Americans to appreciate. In Pharaoh's generosity, new challenges have just arisen for Joseph. Pharaoh, in lavishing Joseph with gifts, with power, with financial blessing, It doesn't mean Joseph is out of the woods when it comes to remaining righteous. Even in our Sunday school, we studied about how for some they're cut off because worldly pleasures, worldly things captivate them so much that basically the life and vitality of their faith is is stolen away. Not in a reformed sense, of course, but basically that they never were. And we live in a culture that says... Get this degree, get that job, and you will have true financial security. You will have financial blessings. You will be able to uh, withstand all forms of struggle and suffering. And some of the greatest things that God has ever done for us is remove prosperity from us. Because let's be honest, let's just think of some of the most bitter and kind of angry people that maybe we've encountered in life. A lot of them, it seems, and it's not a one-for-one kind of thing, but a lot of them seem to have been people who have achieved greatly, who have received financial success of great measure, and it corrupts them, and it pollutes them. Whereas some of the most generous people I ever found are often those who are impoverished in many ways. I I remember I would out sharing the gospel to the homeless. And occasionally they would want to bless me with gifts. And it was just, no, you don't need to give me anything. We live in a culture that says, do these things externally, and then life will be better. And so Joseph has this trap before him, and in his good wisdom... He will not fall for it. All that Pharaoh has given Joseph in the blessings of power, prestige, wealth, and fame could have easily undone Joseph and caused him to stumble and fall. Joseph was being tested in one sense with the question, will the wealth of Egypt corrupt him? We've already seen from Judah's story in chapter 38. He went down to the Canaan and Canaan, had no problem corrupting him. After 20 years, he looked like a godless Canaanite. Joseph, and being given so much more, would have had a far greater opportunity for temptations to come upon him. Power, wealth, the ability to demand or declare anything in the nation with the Pharaoh's authority. It sounds great, but with such blessings in the wrong hands, it can easier, more easily destroy rather than give life. Just think of the internet. The internet is, gives the ability for people to do all kinds of things. And yet, there are other things in the internet that will just rot the mind and the soul if we are not careful. In these blessings, Joseph now has access to new challenges, but he also, in the blessings that he now has access to, there are new challenges that arise, and yet, will he go forth in wisdom? If you think of the kid who goes off to college, what happens when a kid goes off to college? They receive new blessings. They receive new freedoms. And what is the common story? It was the story of the Lord saving me. I could not handle those freedoms. I, was, I used those freedoms to be stuck in the mire of the pit until the Lord saved me. So don't just look at all these blessings. Don't just read through all the blessings that Joseph's being extended and think, oh, how lucky Joseph is in this moment. But let's be honest with ourselves. Power like the kind that Joseph is being handed here is dangerous to hand out. And In most of history, it's been received more poorly than it has been in more godly ways. While Joseph here will be blessed with power, he will exercise it in order to blessing a greater multitude. And that is instructive for us. The power he receives, the wealth he receives, everything that he receives, he will invest it into blessing a great multitude rather than being selfishly corrupted by such power. And so we should ask, in the wealth, and the power that we accumulate in life, does it wield us or do we wield it in service to the multitude? Our call is to wield such things for the glory of God. Then in verse 45, Pharaoh gives Joseph a new name, Zaphimathpaneah. That's how you say it, And notice that name will never be said again. In the biblical narrative of Joseph's story, that name will never be said for him because it's a name the world gives him. The world's pharaoh gives him. It doesn't matter what the rulers of the world might bless us with. Our name is our name as established by God. And so we need to be ruled and reigned by his leading. Joseph will receive this pagan name, but he won't do so by bowing to a pagan society. And yet the name Pharaoh gives, Joseph, does have meaning. It means, and I love kind of the dark humor in this at first glance. Pharaoh might have been a little sarcastic and a lover of irony, which I appreciate. It was, God speaks, so he lives. What would have happened to Joseph if Joseph did not have an answer to Pharaoh's dream? Pharaoh would have certainly killed him. God speaks, so he lives. And yet, even in that name, there is a beauty to it. Because what is Pharaoh recognizing? That Joseph, a representative, a son of Israel, representative of the true God, Yahweh, that he has this life-giving speech, this power of life within him. Remember, we talked about this last week, even in, I believe it was verse 37, maybe I'm off by one or two, but he notices the spirit of God in it. What a beautiful recognition by Pharaoh. That God speaks, so he lives. It's a testimony to really how, what we believe in our faith. God speaks, and so some live. And then Pharaoh, still loving irony, he gives Joseph a wife. And don't confuse the the name that sounds like Potiphar. It's a different person. It's a different name. With the Potiphar that Joseph struggled with and falsely accused Joseph earlier. Actually, the notable thing about this wife that is given to Joseph is that this woman comes from the priest of all priests, the magi of all magis in Egypt. This temple that he served at was about seven miles northwest or east of Cairo, and it was the heart and center of sun worship for Egypt. It was actually very common in Egyptian culture to call... Whoever was the high priest of this temple, the greatest seer in the land, the seer of all seers. And what has happened in this chapter? Well, there's been an irony. None of Pharaoh's seers have been able to see and interpret and understand his dream. And Joseph has risen in to be the greatest seer in the land. And so... I think Pharaoh's being a little tongue-in-cheek here. The prized daughter of the seer connecting Joseph now and grafting him into the royal family of Egypt is being handed to Joseph because he's actually the greatest seer of all. So, I have an appreciation for Pharaoh. He, He seems to like irony with a hint of sarcasm, which might resemble somebody you know then in verse 46, Joseph enters into this unique public ministry for Pharaoh at the age of 30 years old. Can you think of anyone else in the Bible who uniquely enters into full-time public ministry for their Lord at the age of 30? And Moses notes that Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt, and there's a sense here in the Hebrew that there was this just great energy and vitality to Joseph's work. He's not resting in his laurels. He's not getting caught up in all that he's been given. He's not being consumed by the power he now has. He is perfectly situated as the right man for this specific job, canvassing the country in order to bring life for the great famine to come. And for seven years, the land was fruitful, and Joseph oversaw a great gleaning from the land. And from verses 47 to 49, the windfall of grain has parallels to the promises made to Abraham. The grain was like the sand of the sea. They can no longer measure it. And Joseph saved in order to be able to endure the famine and lean times that were ahead. And we find out Joseph and his wife were also fruitful at the end of this seven-year period of blessing as it begins to wane. They had two sons within the final calendar year before the famine would come. A double blessing is provided by God on that seventh year. And do you realize what that means? What has now happened in these parallel accounts of Judah's story And Joseph's story? Through Joseph's wife and through Tamar, the two great enemies of Hebrew civilization. The two great enemies in one sense. Egypt and Canaan have been engrafted in to the family of God. They have basically been United by a blood that they all share. The Old Testament, especially in this chapter, in one sense, serves to anticipate the Great Commission to all nations, which Jesus commands his people to partake in at the end of the Gospels. And that's why I can never get behind this pattern of division our current society has embraced. The course of Scripture is clear. We share a unity by our bloodlines that transcends all national and ethnic identities. I don't care about individuals upset that I will not embrace this new godless and senseless orthodoxy of trying to say, we need to entrench national and ethnic divisions into our way of thinking, so that every new story, when it comes about, needs to be filtered through that lens where there can be no unity. No, Christian, there is a better blood of unity, and that blood, of course, is not the blood coursing through the veins of Joseph and Judah, engrafting in Israel's enemies into their family. No, that blood is the shed blood of Christ on the cross, that engrafted in all those whom he died for, all of us, Hebrews, Canaanites, Egyptians, and even in his Mercy, Americans. All tribes, all nations who were once his enemies. And I can't wait to see it in heaven. I can't wait to see that great gathering of nations. That no longer will you try to use and have the world try to use our divisions to to unsettle us and divide us. And to get us to persecute one another. But rather... We'll see the God who embraces such a variety, created such a variety, and we'll love it. Because we love the God who loves variety. And so after seven years defined by blessing, Joseph is given two sons. And what does he do? He proves that the Egyptian blessings he's been showered with have not caused him to forget who he is. The first clue is this. Who named all of Jacob's children? It was his mother's. It was the mother's. Joseph's not going to let his Egyptian wife name his children. It's not because he doesn't love her, but because he's still a Hebrew and will give them Hebrew names accordingly. While Egypt has extended him all that it has to offer, he has not forgotten his identity. He is a Hebrew. He is a son of Israel. And he will not forsake those, that tribe that forsake him. And so Joseph names his first son Manasseh, which means a cause to forget. The firstborn son in the year seven of Egypt, himself helped serve to give Joseph comfort that while he's still exiled from his family in the land of his family, that God has given him a cause to forget. And notice, please notice, that in Joseph giving his son a name like that, Joseph's still admitting he still struggles and suffers with past offenses committed against him. The last seven years of blessing haven't made the former wounds of now a full total 20 years, 13 first to start, entirely heal. Let us respect that reality. And let us maybe even allow it to help us in understanding the idea of suffering. Having all the wealth and power of an Egyptian pharaoh isn't enough to dole all of life's sorrows away. My previous city I called home was built in the middle of a desert wasteland in Las Vegas, selling the idea of such a myth that quick riches and excesses can dole life's sorrows, but it can't. But then Joseph is given a second son, Ephraim, which means be fruitful. And Joseph, in naming him Ephraim, can't help but recognize God continues to bless Joseph even in the midst of the personal struggles he still has with the past. Joseph, in naming the two sons what he names them, is recognizing while he m- laments, God still gives him joy and blessing in the midst of life's laments. And then our chapter closes with the lament of a famine falling upon all the world. And the word world here does not need to be world. Even the ministry answers in Genesis, which takes the position on this chapter that we're talking about the region in which Egypt had a sphere of influence. There are actually even textual clues that you can see even in the ESV that bring clear that it's most likely a regional famine. But it could have been the world. But the point of the conclusion is clear. God has uniquely blessed Joseph and been prepared for this famine the world is about to face. Joseph did not succumb, neither to despair nor temptation. And so rich was the blessing that God poured out upon Egypt that through the favored son of Israel, Joseph, that not only Egypt was able to meet the needs of their own people, but all the nations of the world that would come unto them. In one sense, Egypt has become a new kind of Noah's Ark, a place of refuge for those in despair that they can seek out. How amazing these storehouses must have been that they could feed not only all those in Egypt who would come to them, but even the nations. What a place to end, especially in considering this week, but really even the cycle of the last several years where unique famines have been poured out upon our land throughout our world, where there are great needs, including our nation. And a great many people who are sustaining themselves on things that cannot sustain life. Do you have access, Christian, to the storehouse that is the Spirit of God in the famines that we face in our present day? Do you share the knowledge of that storehouse with others and desire for them to come in and and begin to partake of the grain that makes our daily bread and helps us carry on? when there is no other life-giving bread to be found. Jesus tells us in Matthew 24 that there would be, as the day approaches, great famines throughout the land. And there are times that the New Testament writes about natural famines. Because a natural famine is a serious thing. Starvation, the starvation that ensues, cuts a life short, a mortal life short. And yet there is a second kind of famine the scriptures talk about, and it's a far greater consequence because its stakes are eternal. Its consequences are eternal. And it's the spiritual famine of the people. And so when God calls us with great vigor to go out into the land to harvest and to bless the multitude. He does so, so that we might be a part of that far more crucial work of giving people who are starving spiritually the living bread that is Christ our Lord. We need to strive to bring new members into the family of God, new blood-bound brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior. This righteous son of Israel, the suffering servant, he has storehouses of grace and mercy for all those who spiritually hunger and thirst. We can drink all, and eat all we like from their storehouses, all that we need and desire without cost or charge. And he only asks, that we share this good news with others suffering in our midst so they might partake as well. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, there are many things that would undo our sense and vigor and desire for your word to go out. For the good news of grace and the good news of the faithful son of Israel to be shared and help us to have courage help us to not give in to worldliness or not give in to fear Lord help us to provide a truer greater answer in all the noise and the clamor of society Because there is a great famine in our day. And so let us share the bread from heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.